Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Okay, great. So we're here in Norway and I'm talking to Stacy and what we wanted to talk about today was mostly the CPGs. So um, Stacy, why don't you introduce yourself, I guess. Okay, uh, Stacy Shackleford. I'm the director of performance improvement at the Joint Trauma System, and one of our main jobs is writing clinical practice guidelines. Cool, and that's that's what a CPG is. That was my first question. Like, what is a CPG? Because we always throw that around, and people kind of look at it as funny if they've never heard of one. So, like, how did how did the CPGs start? The CPG started uh, with the surgical hospitals. Back when JTS first started, like in 2005, probably the first published guideline was in 2007. And I think they really just started off as lessons learned, you know, so passing on from one deployed team to the next. This is what we did. This is what we did wrong. This is sort of lessons that we learned about specific to combat casualty care. Were they evidence-based at the time or was it more experience-based, do you think? I think they started off with a lot of experience-based, you know, sort of, I mean, one of the early ones, I mean, it could start off either way. It could start off with, here's a problem that we're trying to fix, or here's a problem that we recognized, and this is how we decided to address it. So I think the first one was hypothermia management, and this was recognized as a problem in the trauma system that, you know, hypothermia is part of the lethal triad. We don't even know how to fix this problem at first. It started off, they weren't even recording the temperatures when they were arriving to the oh, hospital. Wow. So that was uh-huh. the first thing. Let's get everybody to record the temperatures. And then a certain percent of patients were showing up hypothermic. And they're like, all right, how can we fix this problem? And, you know, what's causing the problem? You kind of drill down and it comes, well, these people don't have the hypothermia management kits and they don't even know how to order them because they can't find the NSM number. And so they essentially made a clinical practice guideline that said, um, you know, Trauma patients need to have hypothermia management, every trauma patient. Mm-hmm. So it was more of a systems-based thing. So it wasn't just surgeons writing for surgeons. It was more like, hey, how can we improve the team by maybe putting in SOPs or best practices? And It could be both. Um, so okay. like for the hypothermia one, that was a whole system thing. You know, you really need the, that hypothermia management to start at the point of injury. But then some of the CPGs are really, really specific to brain surgeons. Mm-hmm. You know, like the neurosurgeons need to do craniectomies for this indication, or they need to do spinal decompression surgery. And these are the indications, and this is when you don't do it. Um, you know, at any rate, the, the guidelines are always just guidelines. And, you know, kind of emphasize that term because it doesn't tell you how you have to do it. Right. Uh, you can still always fall back on your clinical judgment, but it does set a certain expectation and a certain standard of care so that if you don't do what's in the guideline, you should have a, a good reason for yeah. deviating. And it's also good for people that are hospital based um, that maybe don't do this every day. And then all of a sudden they get thrown into that environment. So it kind of gives them something to, you know. Right. Absolutely. And like if you practice, even if you practice a trauma center in the U.S. every day, you're not going to see, you know, blast injuries. Right. And, um, you know, one of the other early CPGs was management of war wounds. And Mm -hmm. that was based off of some recognition at the role four that a lot of patients were getting their wounds closed downrange and they were showing up at the role four with terrible infections. Yeah. So we went back to teaching our surgeons that, you know, it should be a very rare occasion that you close a wound, a war wound downrange. Mm-hmm. And some of these, 
because medics have come to me and said, you know, hey, there's some really good info in there. Are there a lot in the past CPGs, for instance, the surgical ones? Do you think that medics or soft medics in particular could then study and perhaps use some of those tools? Yeah, I mean, there's 43 CPGs. And so um, it just depends on the topic of the CPG. Right. CPG. Yeah. So, for instance, the damage control resuscitation CPG, which was just updated, has a fantastic section on remote damage control and mm-hmm. pre-hospital, you know, damage control resuscitation, blood transfusions, et cetera. So, I mean, that one's fantastic. Um, TBI management that goes through all the non-surgical things that you can do to manage a TBI, reduce ICP. It's not specifically pre-hospital focus necessarily, but mm-hmm. there's a ton of good information in there. Yeah, that's cool. So the, the CPGs themselves, who maintains the content? For instance, if something gets rewritten, whose responsibility is it to do those types of things? I mean, it's really maintained by the joint trauma system, but I think one of the reasons they've been so successful and we've had so much buy-in is that really anybody can contribute. And, you mm-hmm. Sometimes I joke about everybody that touches a patient thinks they're part of the joint trauma system. In a way, they kind of yeah, are, you know, right. but it, even if they're not literally employed by the joint trauma system, um, everybody, a lot of people, when they go down range, they have the experience that, you know, there's problems and they just, you know, feel like they know how to fix the problems. And, a lot, and you know, there's a lot of knowledge out there that, that we could tap into. And so, you know, there's the CPGs that we have can be updated at any time. So we kind of consider them living documents. There's not a certain cycle that you have to wait five years before they can be updated, you know, like ACLS. It's just anytime you feel like there's something that needs to be updated or changed, mm-hmm. anyone in the field can contact JTS and, you know, contribute to that. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's also um, a way if you uh, recognize a gap, like a topic that is new or hasn't been covered in a CPG as well, that um, to, to, to write a new CPG. So there's actually a CPG on how to write a CPG. Nice. The first CPG on the list <laughs> of 40, yeah. 43 in the in the CPGs that are on the website now. Uh-huh. Cool. So, um, you know, we started doing the prolonged field care CPGs. How did that all start? Like, um, it started, I mean, it came from your group that you, the PFC working group had identified four topics that, you know, kept the, kept them up at night and, you know, like how were you going to manage these four topics in the field? So you had already come to JTS with an idea in mind of four specific topics that you wanted to address for CPGs in the PFC environment. Mm-hmm. And then we jump right in and start doing all four at once. So you know, how did that work? Next time someone comes with me a really smart idea like that, I'm going to start with one at a time. Yeah. So, so we started doing that. And um, what were the challenges you think trying to do the PFC ones versus the, you know, the traditional ones for the surgical stuff? I think the spectrum of the environment was a lot broader. And so it was more of a challenge to, to figure out how to structure those CPGs to meet the challenges of the different environments. Um, I mean, PFC working group did a fantastic job in writing the, you know, getting formulated on paper where people can read it and understand the, you know, the capabilities. And the environmental factors. And so, you know, we had all that as background, the 10 capabilities and the four, you know, different types of environments that were 
um, that have been described. And so, you know, we were really trying to cover recommendations from anybody who is, you know, just in the field, operating out of a backpack, working with, you know, working on a patient, all the way up to any type of more advanced role one environment, you know, just mm-hmm. a non-surgical capability. Yeah. So that spectrum, we wanted to be able to make sure to make recommendations that covered those various environments. Right, right. Almost in working on four at once, we tried to kind of almost cram it into the construct of the ruck, truck, house, and plane. But then we figured out, based on the disease, for instance, the crush injury one, that it was more um, the, the time, the management time was more focused around someone who's entrapped or extrication or whatnot. We found that that worked better, but there was a fair amount of back and forth discussion. Yeah, you know, it was really we, hard at first. I mean, we started off trying to do, you know, we had the men better best uh, construct that you would set out with the capabilities. Mm-hmm. And then we had the ruck truck house plane. So we tried to do men better best for the ruck and men better best for the truck and the house and the plane. Yeah, and that turned well. into like <laughs> 25 different recommendations. But and then, you know, as we sort of went through it, it mm-hmm. was like really the environment itself drives whether you can meet minimum, better or best. And it's not just the environment, but it's the environment, the training level of the medic, the equipment and supplies that they have with them. Yep. And recognizing the limited resources, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So that yeah. will tell you whether you're going to be operating at the minimum, better or best level. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so we've ended up just making for every intervention where we made a recommendation there's a min better and best, or sometimes there's just min and best if there's only two options, but yeah. Yeah. And I think um, the the nice thing too, a lot of things with prolonged field care education is what we try to do is explain a little bit of the why and the physiology. And so I think the beginning portion of those do a nice job kind of encapsulating everything you need to know without going overboard at the science and whatnot. But there's seems to be a fair amount of scientific background. So some of the folks, you know, for instance, when you set out to do a CPG, how do you, um, delineate who has what or, or how do you build the team of authors that go into a CPG, a particular CPG? There's not a really, really structured way to do that. Uh, as we started working with prolonged field care, we wanted to represent different viewpoints. So, you, you know, you know, you need a, a really scientific person to review all the evidence and make sure that you're capturing all the evidence-based you know, practice best recommendations. Uh, and then you need, you know, uh, advanced medic who's actually been in the field and done this to make sure that they're not just, they're making ivory tower recommendations that can't keeping be. the doctors in check as exactly. it were. So. <laughs> so you want to make recommendations that can actually, uh, work in that environment. And so, so then we're, so we start off. So, all right, well, we need, you know, a specialist in that topic. We need, uh, advanced medic. And then we also thought it was important to bring in an operational doc who uh, worked with uh, those type of medics. And then we have the, so those were sort of the three key players that we uh-huh. put on every, every CPG that we've been writing for PFC in particular. And then there usually ends up being a couple of other, we just call them subject matter experts who have a strong interest or expertise in that area mm-hmm. and just trying to cover the spectrum of different viewpoints and approaches to a problem. Yeah. And I think the thing that impressed me is it's not just the good ideas of those particular authors, but there's a fair amount of scientific rigor that goes into reviewing the available evidence. And I've had a couple people actually come to me and say, hey, you know, you didn't talk about this specific 
aspect of it. And then what we went back to, and as I discovered through some of the ongoing discussion as we develop these things, is because there's not evidence out there. And so there are some areas that are a bit controversial. And um, there is a fair amount of expert opinion when there isn't evidence to guide that. But I think we also realize that some of the practices that are out there um, perhaps weren't scientifically sound or, in fact, may have some consequences we didn't know about. For instance, uh, when we were doing the pain and sedation, mixing multiple medications in a syringe, when we talked to the clinical pharmacologists, they said, well, you know, we can't um, ensure that the, the potency of the medicine will be regulated, especially if it's mixed together and especially if it's, um, you know, kind of been setting aside for a while. We're not really sure over time how that might degrade the, the medication strength. So having those kind of uh, scientific backing and rigor, as well as a whole bench of experts to run it off and bounce the ideas is something that we just didn't have on the operational side. And that's huge that, you know, it seems as though a lot of these recommendations come forward as relatively simple, but there is a fairly complex decision process to really vet out the information and then to package it in such a way that's useful for the guys on the ground. Um, and I think some folks who read these, who, who read into them, start to understand that as well. Um, the other thing I think that I insisted on was, was two things. One was to have a one-pager. So when we have handouts and whatnot, a one-pager that folks can put in their smart book. So, for instance, encapsulating all the recommendations on, um, you know, the front and back of a page. And so there's the discussion portion, but then there's one page summary. And then lastly, the packing list, you know, getting into a packing list, no kidding. What is it that I should bring with me so that I can at least have the minimum better or best capability to take care of one of these patients if we run into them. So, um, yeah. So what other things do you think this process of developing these CPGs, how do you think it's been different from your experience of either writing or editing like the surgical CPGs besides trying to capture the breadth of the operational area? Um, I mean, we've never in the other CPGs, there's typically a specific recommendation for each intervention, you know, so there would be a specific antibiotic and maybe like one alternate antibiotic or a specific intervention that's recommended. And that's really the recommendation. So sort of the unique thing about the, PFC guidelines is that they have, you know, start off with a best recommendation and that, you know, this is the best practice. So, you know, say for airway, it might be a bit controversial, but the best practice for managing an airway is probably an RSI with sedation and airway control and suction. You know, no, I think nobody's going to argue that that would be the best practice, but in a particular environment, that might be a really stupid thing to do. And so uh, you may decide that you're not going to meet that level of care. So you can go down to the, to the mm -hmm. better recommendation. And at that point, it drops down to that recommendation is be do a cricothyroidotomy, sedate the patient, you know, monitor entitled CO2 and uh, control and uh, be able to suction the airway. And so that that would give you as a medic the choice to you know decide which level you were going to meet. Sure, sure. And, that, and along with that, the equipment and the training required to maintain that and all of those type of things. But we don't want to give it all away because airway's not not completely written at this point. But <laughs> so um, any other any uh, any other comments about the uh, the process of CPGs? Are you, are you working on CPGs for um, for other areas outside of PFC and the surgical side? Are there other CPGs out there? Um, so we do have several that are currently in development and we also have a, a gap list that we're working on. And we're also working on a big project to finish updating all of the ones that are currently on the website. So there's a, there is a lot of activity that's, 
you know, still going on into the, into the CPGs mm-hmm. as well. And there are some other committees developing right now, the Enroute Care and the Surgical Right. Care so ones. JTS has had the Tactical Combat Casualty Care Committee for uh, quite a while now. It started, the TC3 committee started as its own uh, thing, and then it was a part of the Defense Health Board before it moved to JTS. But it's been at JTS for over five years now. And this past year, we got funding to start a, a Surgical Combat Casualty Care Committee and an on Combat Casualty Care Committee sort of in uh, to try to cover the entire spectrum of care. Um, and there's definitely some overlap areas because a lot of these surgical teams are practically functioning as en route care teams as well. And prolonged field care kind of overlaps a lot of areas uh, underneath that as well. So uh, it's been an interesting collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd see, you know, there may be some conflicts in the knowledge, but overall, I think it's just going to benefit everyone else to kind of, you know, be able to apply these in different areas. So, and lastly, CPGs, where can you find them if folks are looking for them? They're on the JTS website. So the easiest way to find that is to go to any search engine and type in JTS CPG. And the first thing that comes up should be the JTS website. And they're all listed on there. We have the JTS CPGs, the Proline Field Care CPGs, of which there's currently three, soon to be four. And uh, we're we're expanding out uh, more PFC CPGs, about one every three months uh, currently. Cool. Excellent. Well, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. For today's podcast, be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Out.